Welcome to Chazon the Podcast. The next few episodes are part of the series, Sound the Call, a journey through COP26. COP26 is a UN summit that has convened global leaders to accelerate action towards averting the worst impacts of the climate crisis. Yakir Manella, CEO of Chazon, and Nigel Savage, the visionary founder of Chazon, have flown to Glasgow to advocate for bold, meaningful climate action and meet other faith climate leaders who are doing the same. During each episode, they will speak with a different faith leader who they've met at COP26 to debrief the day's events and to learn more about their climate work. This episode was recorded on the first day of COP26. Yakir is getting to know his new friend, Gopal Patel, the co-founder and director of Bumi Global and co-chair of the UN Multi-Faith Advisory Council. You can find more information about Bumi Global in the episode notes. This conversation was recorded live, right from the floor of the COP26 pavilion, so please excuse some of the background noise you might hear from the excitement of the event. Enjoy. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to Sound the Call, a Jewish journey through COP26. My name is Yakir Manella, and I am here with my new friend, Gopal Patel, uh, founder and director of Bumi Global. Um, who we just met here at, uh, at COP26 and just landed this morning, um, haven't slept in a while, <laughs> um, here with 30,000 of our closest friends uh, in, in Glasgow, Scotland. It hasn't rained. It's been a cold and rainy day. No, nope, it hasn't rained. It's been a cold, windy day, but it hasn't rained. That's Glasgow. Um, got to see the, uh, the synagogue and have a bagel brunch with the, with the local Jewish community. And then have spent the day wandering through the blue zone with like a hundred different pavilions of every country and every climate oriented topic you could think of. Honestly, quite overwhelming. And then I stumbled into, I found a session that I'd, I'd been looking for ahead of time, looking ahead, forward to, hosted by the World Wildlife Fund, something like, how can faith leaders create a nature positive world? And heard Gopal speak. We had been connected by email before we hadn't met and we spent the last couple of hours together. So Gopal, thank you so much for, for showing me the ropes here. You're a, clearly a cop expert. And I think it'd be great for folks just to hear more about you and, and Boomi Global's work. Um, yeah, let's, let's start there. We have a very, we have a very complicated system. <laughs> mask on, mask off. It's like from Karate Kid. Check um, so, here. Nice to meet you. Yeah, we just met like a few hours ago, but maybe we, the Hindu in me would like to think that we met in a previous life. Oh, I, I don't know if that's acceptable. For you. Right. I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so I run, I run an organization called Bumi Global. Bumi is a Sanskrit word, which is the ancient language of India. And, it, and Bumi means earth or mother earth specifically. And we are an environmental organization. We work with Hindus right across the world in India, Europe, East Africa, North America on issues of climate change, biodiversity, and pollution. And we chose the name Bumi because, not just because it means Mother Earth, but it signifies um, an idea. And an idea which is very important to Hindu understanding of the world, which is that the world is alive, that the world is sacred, that the world is not just some object or inert matter, but the earth, the globe, as we see it, is a personality called Bumi, Bu Devi, actually. And she has a form, 
in what we call the spiritual world. Um, but when she appears in this material realm, she takes the form of the globe. Just as the rivers and the mountains all have spiritual forms, and when they take form here in the world, they take on these forms that we can understand and, and see. And so we chose the word Bumi for that reason. And we do this work to, in many ways, to mainstream that idea, an idea which I think we all know is true in our hearts, but have forgotten for various reasons, which is that the earth is sacred. The earth is a gift. It's been given to us or, yeah, it's been given to us or we've been asked to look after her or it, um, which, you know, depending on how we want to look at it for our respective traditions. And so that's what we try to do. Um, in addition to that, I uh, co-chair the UN's Multi-Faith Advisory Council, um, which is 40 different faith groups of the UN. And I also sit on the advisory board for the UN's Decades on Ecosystem Restoration as well. So I'm really in this, our organization and myself, I've been doing this for 12 years, in this space about trying to mobilize Hindus and other people of different spiritualities and faiths on addressing the climate and biodiversity crisis. How's that for you? Wow, we've been talking for a few hours. You didn't mention all of that. Um, I knew about Boomi Global, but wow, uh, amazing to to see. We were, we were walking around and we saw the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the um, the church. We saw the Chief Rabbi of the British Commonwealth. I think is the term. Um, Maybe I'm not sure. You pointed him out. But I don't know if he's the Archbishop of the Commonwealth. He may just be Archbishop of no, the Rabbi. The oh, no, Chief the, rabbi. oh, the Chief Rabbi. I don't know if it's for the Commonwealth or <laughs> just for... <laughs> we were playing religious leader bingo, and we, and we scored a few points. We did I get think. a few points, yes. We um, did. So there are definitely faith leaders here, yeah. and, and you clearly have experience working with, with these folks in this context mm -hmm. of the climate conference. It's the, it's the first day. The opening ceremony was a few hours ago. Yep. President Biden gave a speech. It was interesting. I was walking through the pavilions here and he shows up on a tv screen and like a hundred people stop and gather and it wasn't the u.s center which is just down the way here it was some not not american center but clearly um you know what the what the american president says on this has a big impact on this Plus, issue so yeah, yeah. people gather to hear his speech um and and then i, I wanted to to lift up uh particularly because of your role um in in working with faith leaders across the world in this context. Something that, a couple of things that were said in, in your session where it was you and Karenna Gore mm -hmm. of the Center for Earth Ethics. Right, right. Um, tell us, tell us uh, who else was in that session. And then, you know, some of the uh, most deeply, I think moving commentary there felt to me like powerful to hear in a UN context, but maybe you've heard it before, which is like, this is not just an energy crisis. It's not even just like a nature restoration crisis. There's a moral and a spiritual crisis here. And to hear these like different faith leaders from across the world speak to that, was just, it was pretty powerful. And I think we actually have the link. I think we may try to post it on our website, but just share, share more about who was in that room and what was that session? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, um, it was an event hosted by WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and it was um, to talk about the role of faith groups advocating not just for nature, but for biodiversity. And biodiversity is a fancy way of saying nature or the environment or wildlife. 
And so as you said, we had Karenna Gore from the Center for Earth Ethics, myself. We had Dan Perel from the Baha'i UN office. We had Sister Jayanti from the Brahma Kumaris. And we had Deborah Boudreaux from the Buddhist Suji Foundation. So you had a, you had a good spread, I would say, of different spiritualities and traditions and geographies and, and cultures. And yeah, it, it, it is interesting because like the conversation we had today, it was a really good conversation, um, but it kind of speaks to something we were talking about earlier. It's a conversation I've had many times before. I'm in those spaces on an almost daily basis with my work, talking to other religious, spiritual leaders or representatives about the moral, the, the moral dimension to the, to the climate crisis. And it is interesting when people who, have, who don't hear that, that angle hear it for the first time. It's like, can I say they had a, they have like a coming to Jesus moment? Am I allowed to say that? It's not an epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they have an epiphany. They're like, oh, wow, this is something very new, very interesting. And, and you're right that the environmental crisis, it, yes, it is a technical crisis. It's a crisis of finance and fossil fuels and so on. But at its heart, it is a crisis of values, of morality, of ethics. And you can trace it, you can trace the roots, you can trace the roots to the Industrial Revolution, where we started to decide that we can use nature for our needs without thinking about what we're doing to the environment. You can even trace it back to Columbus and his arrival in the Americas, and you can trace it back to the papal bulls that came out the year after Columbus arrived in the Americas, where the Pope at the time said that Christians are allowed to take over any land which hasn't which hadn't already been claimed by Christians. And those instructions and the Industrial Revolution and so on set forth a series of events and moments which are really based in certain values, values that we can control nature, values that we can dominate nature, values that we can do whatever we want to nature and we don't need to care. And, you know, in Hinduism, we would say this is our karma. You know, what you put out comes back in. We've put out destruction and decay and so many horrible things into the planet, onto the planet for the last couple of hundred years. And that's not without um, repercussions. And we're facing those repercussions right now. So this is definitely um, a crisis of values. And where we are right now, I think, which is, which is what we spoke about in the event is, where do we want to go? What value system do we need to have to get out of this? Because as Einstein said, you can't use the same thinking every time and expect a different solution. Our thinking is wrong. Our thinking has been wrong for many, many years. What are the new paradigms? What are the new frameworks we need to develop to get ourselves out of this? I think that's what we discussed today. And that was really powerful. Amen. Thank you. Um, you know, one of, another thing that was said during, by the way, in case you haven't figured it out, we're, we haven't rented a private room for this, for this podcast. We're in the pavilion hall, so you might hear some background. Um, so one of the other things that was said in that in that session was, I think it might have been you who said it. Uh, I have been known to say you, you say You've been saying a lot of things. Uh, and it was the World Wildlife Fund and, and this term nature positive. Um, we think about climate as fundamentally a question of what is our energy infrastructure, right? Coal versus solar. And that is clearly a huge part of it. And I think it was you that said, and, and others in that session, fully a third of this 
challenge and third of the solution is is about nature and how how much nature how much green space is there how many trees how much habitat is there that that is sequestering carbon and it's also really about quality of life as well for humanity um i uh have been as you know i'm stepping into my new role as, as you know at the zone thinking about where is our, you know, uh, sweet spot and, and wheelhouse. And we do so much around food and farming and connecting people to nature. Um, I think that story is not told enough that we can't just solve this through changing the, you know, you turn on the light the same amount of hours and it just go into something else instead of, right, that we didn't have to do anything. We just, the, Congress, please God, will pass a lot of money to move that in the right direction. It needs to happen. And what is our relationship to nature? What is our relationship to green space? And that comes back to who Davy is that what you mm -hmm. said? Gaia. Yeah. 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 And I think what uh, I'm trying to think what is the uh, the the Jewish conception of that? It's all one. It's 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 God. It's unity. We are all we are all part of um, Bria creation. Um, you, I think to speak to like, what is the, I think there's a real connection between the, the nature positive movement, which I hadn't heard that term until today, the nature positive movement. So you speak to more of that. And what is that overlap? Because we've been talking about what is the added value of the faith communities here? Maybe that's really getting at something that, you know, an energy analyst or an energy, that's critical. We have to support that happening. And there's something more here that could be as big as a third of the picture. And it's certainly a huge part of like the human experience. Sure. sure. Right? Yeah. 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 So um, there's a phrase, little piffy phrase, which would be helpful to remember, which is that nature is 30. What that means is like nature, biodiversity, just by if we don't cut down any more trees, kill any more wildlife and pollute any more oceans, just by preserving what we have right now, that will get us 30% to the Paris climate agreement. If we just stop, if we just stop, let's just stop. That's just like 30%, which is huge. If we just, wow. If we don't cut down any more trees or anything like that, right? But, wow. And so that's what, that's why we're saying 30%. Part of the challenge is the drivers of what we call biodiversity loss, the drivers of deforestation, the drivers of the oceans being polluted or overfished is consumption, human consumption, right? Um, we know that the biggest driver of deforestation in the Amazon is beef production, right? So those of those people who are eating beef are contributing, unfortunately, say to the deforestation of the Amazon, right? All these things are interconnected, right? We know that like an action in this part of the world now has implications in another part of the world and another part of the world. So we need to radically shift our consumption patterns if we are to protect biodiversity. And as you're saying, food is a huge makeup of that. Again, I think food accounts for, I think I said today, a quarter or a third of all emissions, right? And so every day, because this, this year I did a lot of work on food systems at the UN, every day, three times a day, for most people, we are making an environmental decision, right? What we put on our plate is an environmental decision. You know, like, where does that food come from? Who grew it? Who transported it? What animals were killed, if any at all? You know, so like, this isn't complicated stuff. It literally starts at your dinner table three times a day, 
What are you having for breakfast? What are you having for lunch? What are you having for dinner? And so I think, you know, when we talk about the value add of, of faith-based organizations, it's, it is sometimes the big picture stuff around like, like these holy concepts and theology and all that kind of stuff. But it's also like just a very basic sort of like, what is a good life? You know, what kind of person do we want to be? What kind of community do we want to live in? And, you know, if you, if you strip away all the stories and all the rituals that we all have in our traditions, which we all love and are really important, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Like, how are you going to be a good father? How are you going to be a good student? How are you going to be a good professional? And our faiths inform that. And I think that's what, increasingly I'm thinking, that's what the faith contribution is. The big lofty ideals are good in these forums, but for, the, for most people, it's about how can I lead a good life now where I'm not harming the planet and I'm not harming other people, I'm not harming animals of the world. And I think that, that is our contribution at this stage. There's a, there's a Hebrew word, Dainu, mm. with a song we sing in Passover, which is about- and Are you gonna sing it? Uh, I'll join in, come. You don't know the song? You know the song? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's about if this happened, it would have been enough. Mm. If this happened, that'd be enough. And when you talk about like, if all we, if all we could do was just help people think about what is the good life, right. and like with clarity and focus in this moment, Dainu, like that would, mm. that would be enough. We're trying to do more than that, but that's that's like really at its core, as you said. And I was we were talking about this a little bit before. Like that's really potent. That's really moving. Mm -hmm. Um, There is there's thirty thousand people here. It's a massive undertaking. Yeah, yeah. Somebody was just talking about we heard uh, somebody who's been here for many events and said, you know, sometimes I wonder if they took all the money that went into this gathering and and just like yeah planted some trees and gave, gave it to a bunch of grants or, or a booming gobble or <laughs> anybody. Um, and, and with that, you know, a piece of skepticism is, as I was sharing, uh, not a great, um, not a great reputation that the United Nations has per se in the Jewish community, right. but stuff that happens. Yeah, yeah. But it's a massive organization and you have a particular role. It's actually year round and over the course of many years. Mm-hmm. So can you just tell us a little more about like, what is the work of the Multi-Faith Advisory Council? Mm-hmm. What is it like to see this, uh, this work of the UN, particularly focused on, on climate and you said biodiversity. Those are the two, two big areas you've been involved that in. That I work on, yeah. 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 Which is very different from all the, frankly, hard experiences the Jewish community has had from uh, with, with the United Nations. So just tell us more about that work. And we were talking before about would it make sense and how might it make sense for Fazon and you know, Jewish organizations to get involved. So touch on that if you like, but just, you know, how, how does that work inform you and, and, you know, where do you see the impact in that, both in your work and, and across the world? Yeah. Yeah, so the Multi-Faith Advisory Council um, is just one interfaith body connected to the UN. There are others as well. And I think what the value add is, if I can be honest, is just that the UN, like any human institution, like any religious institution, is imperfect and needs help, needs reform, needs to do better, right? And we... We can all admit that for ourselves in our own lives and in our families and businesses and you know, all the way up to the United Nations. 
And so what we try to do at the Multi-Faith Advisory Council is support and advise the UN when needed about how to best engage with religious institutions because the UN is not an expert on religion. Uh, it's an expert on many things, but certainly not on religion. And so it needs people or institutions, religious groups, FBOs, faith-based organizations to be at the table to say, hey, look, <clears throat> for example, around the COVID vaccines, a lot of hesitancy in faith-based organizations, faith institutions on the vaccine. There have been a number of consultations and meetings between the WHO and the Multi-Faith Advisory Council around how do we talk, how do we get more religious people to take the vaccine? What's the language we need to use? What can we say? What can't we say? And things like that. And we know if faith leaders speak up around getting the vaccine, people listen. You know, if the imam stands up or the rabbi or the swami or the priest, the congregants will listen, right? <clears throat> so that's just one example. And there are many others of how the Multi-Faith Advisory Council and other faith engagement at the UN can strengthen the work of the UN to um, be more sensitive, to be a little bit more engaged, be a bit more nuanced when it works with faith-based institutions. <coughs> the other opportunity, <coughs> I think, and speaking, speaking to the other part of your question, which is that <coughs> the world is in need of new ideas. You know, it's been running on old ideas or a limited set of ideas for the last 70 years or so. And the world has changed in the last 70 years, geopolitically, economically, socially, culturally. <clears throat> and new ideas need to come to the table. And I think that's one reason I engage with the UN, because I want to bring Hindu ideas to the UN. Not because I think Hindu ideas are the best. Some of them are pretty funny. Some of them are outdated. Some of them are really interesting. But you need to be at the table in order to get your ideas heard, right? And if I'm contributing Hindu ideas and this person's contributing Buddhist ideas and this person's contributing uh, Muslim ideas, it's an interesting conversation, but we can see, oh, actually with this in commonality here, we can see like there are other ways of thinking or being. And I think there's a lot in the Jewish community that needs to be heard at the global level. And I know you told me that Jews make up 0.02% of the world's population, but you have some great ideas. Like the fact that you told me this year is the year of Shemitah, the year of rest for the earth. That's like a radical idea. No other religion, as far as I know, has that idea that every seven, seven years, you just don't do anything. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's why you told me you're not doing any work. You let the land rest and you forgive debts. It's an active rest. Yes, but you got the idea. You got the general idea. <laughs> but that's a great idea, you know, to bring that to the table and share it with others, other faith groups at the UN, share it with the UN itself. They probably won't, aren't going to adopt it, but it's, it's interesting to get people thinking. And so I think that's why it is important for different faith traditions, spiritualities to engage at the UN, because the world is going through changes. And the, um, as I said earlier, the value systems that have got us here have been really good in some respects and been really, really bad in other respects. And we need new ideas in the mix in order to get us out of this mess. And I think the Jewish community can, can, can bring a lot in that respect. Mm. You've, you've inspired me. I'm, I'm, I want to learn more um, and, uh, and, and explore more with you. You've clearly figured out how to navigate that so we can explore that together. It is true that um, in 99, 1998, 99, there was a movement, I think the UN was involved, called Jubilee 2000. Mm. 
which was a debt forgiveness, debt relief movement based on the Shemitah year, seven cycles of seven years is the Jubilee year, that the level of disruption and change happening in the world right now feels to me like we're not just necessarily in a Shemitah year, although we are. We could even be in a Yovel year, a Jubilee year. We've always kept track of when the Shemitah year is. We don't know when the, when the Jubilee year is. Can we work it out right now? If anybody could, you could, but I don't think- yeah, Just because I'm Indian doesn't mean I'm good at math, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, so there is, there is some, you know, uh, cultural resonance with this idea. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to share, and then we'll close in a, in a couple minutes. Um, we were talking about some similarities in the American Jewish experience and the American Hindu experience, American Indian experience. And is there something there? You know, um, we certainly could draw um you know unequal signs like there's not necessarily complete alignment um with the theology of uh Judeus jewish monotheism and hindu um theology and i actually am excited to go eat dinner and talk all about that <laughs> with you um but while that's that realm is is maybe not as as clear there's so much experience that we have in america as minorities um coming up, working hard, achieving success. You know, one idea we were just batting back and forth is like, is there a way not just to be sort of talking to our faith communities from a religious perspective, from textbook perspective, but to mobilize the ingenuity and the entrepreneurship and the business savvy of our communities in this direction, you know, and right. some Jewish and Hindu uh, folks are already in the climate tech and green tech business. Well, what would it mean for us to try to really spark that in a bigger way? And maybe there's even something, you know, that that could happen side by side or or at least learning from each other. I just wonder if you have any other uh, reflections on, you know, our, our communities, um, particularly in America, but also globally sure. and, and what we can learn from each other, how we can support each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about it a lot. I'm not. I mean, a lot of my close friends are Jewish in the UK and in America. Um, you know, part, well, I'll say also, well, I'll start by saying that historic, like, although theologically, there may be some commonalities, I think that we we'll explore that over dinner tonight. But historically, there are some commonalities as well, because um, Christianity and Islam um, are kind of defined um, in reference to Judaism. And in India, Sikhism, Buddhism, Jainism are all defined as opposition to Hinduism by saying, we are not that. Just as Christianity and Islam says like, we are not that. You know, so there's some, so I have a scholar um, friend in the US who calls um, Judaism and Hinduism the mother religions. That out of those two traditions came the other traditions and those other traditions position themselves in opposition or saying they don't, they are not. Them what they came out of. So I think that's very interesting. I, that's more of an academic exercise, but I think that's quite fascinating that we are, we come from the two mother religions of the East and the West. Um, and then the immigrant experience or like the current lived experience of Jews and Hindus or Indians in, in, in the US and globally, I would say is, is fascinating because I would say, I don't want to speak for the Jewish community, but I would say, definitely say for the Hindu community, as I was telling you earlier, we have an, we have an outsized um, we have outsized representation in the US. 
um, when it comes to um, the tech sector, head of Microsoft, head of Google, head of so many big tech firms of Indian Hindu origin um, in healthcare. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if your doctor is an Indian or Jewish, <laughs> right? Um, you know, in finance, um, Wall Street in the US, the city of London here, here in, in the UK. Um, you know, we have an outsized influence and it's because we, again, I don't wanna speak for the Jewish community, but I know for the Hindu community, it's about like staying under the radar, just being good citizens, getting your kids through school, um, abiding by the law and just like, just getting ahead quietly and slowly without fuss, looking after your own. <clears throat> and I think, um, and the Hindu community looks to the Jewish community for leadership and inspiration. I know here in the UK, the, the neighborhoods around London that were initially Jewish, the Jews have moved out, now the Hindus have moved in. It's quite fascinating actually to see that. Yeah. Um, and so the Hindu community looks to the Jewish community because again, the Hindus see themselves as persecuted just as the Jewish community has been. I mean, the Hindu community is the majority in India, but for 800 years, it's a paradigm that the West, I think, I think struggles with, is that for 800 years, the, minor, the majority was ruled by a minority. The majority Hindus was ruled first by a minority Muslim, whatever, and then ruled by the British, right? And that's a paradigm that we don't have in the West. In the West, it's always the majority rules over the minority. Uh, anyway, so, <clears throat> So I think there's commonalities there as well. So I would be fascinated to see because there is so much um, respect within the Hindu community for the Jewish community and that the Hindu community looks to the Jewish community as a couple of steps ahead, you know, that like, oh, these guys, they've worked it out. How to be a minority, but ensure that the community is safe, both domestically and internationally with respect to Israel and so on like that. And so it would be fascinating to see like I, I used to live in New York. I think there are some Jews in New York. I think I seen them around. <laughs> Last time I checked. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see like where we can get some Hindus and Jews together to talk about what do we have in common? How can we work together? Because I think the ethic, the work ethic, the family ethic, care for the environment, I think they're very much aligned. And it would be fascinating to see that. <clears throat> well, we're already off to a good start here, yeah. And and this uh, this conversation feels great, and this this day has been uh, really amazing. And it really did start, honestly, a little bit overwhelming for me. And and our conversation, our, our relation has been been great for me today. Good. So thank you. Um, and I want to just uh, offer a chance to to close. I I um, heard you say earlier that you're thinking about a book where here's a, uh, a few stories about different deities told through the lens of nature. So either if you already have one that is your favorite or any just like Hindu teaching that is that you feel like sort of encapsulates, you, you spoke at the beginning about sort of, you know, that the, that the world is a being, it's sacred, you know? Um, so is there any other stories or teachings you just want to share with us that inform and inspire you and your people as your community as you walk this path? <clears throat> I'll just tell the story. I shared it in the session earlier today, I think, which is um, that the very first teaching in Hinduism, in the very first book, there are many books in Hinduism, but the, the Rig Veda is the first book. And the very first teaching in that is this understanding that there is a universal balance or order in the cosmos, in the universe. And it's in Sanskrit, the word is Ritta, R-T-A. <clears throat> and it said that 
this balance, this equilibrium we find in creation is only sustained when we lead lives of personal and collective responsibility, we lead lives of nonviolence, of non-stealing, of being good people. And so for me, that's what I keep coming back to because we're out of balance. The world is out of balance. The environment is in decay and collapse because we are so out of sync with the rhythms of the earth. And we can restore it, but it's up to us. It's not so much the finance and the this and that. <laughs> it's about individual personal conduct. Are we good, honest, truthful, upstanding citizens, essentially? And it's kind of taboo to talk about that, I think, now in contemporary society, about being a good person. When do we ever hear about that anymore? Especially in the current political climate of the United States. But I think it really is that simple. If everybody is just honest and responsible, doesn't try to hurt other people, we can, we can put the balance back in. Um, and so that's what kind of gives me a bit of hope. And that's kind of what inspires me the most as well. Amen. Beautiful. Um, I should note, we're taking off our mask just to help, help, help everybody at home feel comfortable. We took a test before we got here. Hello. We brought our vaccine cards. We take a rapid test every day. Masks on all the time, so everybody's yeah, everybody's being safe, mom. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, mom, we're all safe. <laughs> we're safe. Um, so thank you, Gopal. I really, really appreciate this, and and I I want to share with you um, uh, a piece of of our tradition that I've been thinking about a lot um, coming here, uh, and not just for me, but for all of us here, because really everyone here is on a on a mission to create that balance. I think that really is like a shared project. I don't think I've ever been part of a shared communal project so like intensively as a week of 30,000 people really trying to like focus our mental, emotional, spiritual and political energy in this direction. It's really profound. And so just like praying for that balance, that, that mission of balance to be uh, restored for that mission to be there. So praying for, for all of these travelers, many of whom came from down the street or, or down the road uh, from London, um, and many of whom coming from all over the world. I mean, coming through the airport and seeing and just coming, walking around here, it is so amazing to see the full beauty and diversity of humanity. It's yep. such an honor it's to great. be here. And so this is a, a prayer uh, from our tradition, the traveler's prayer, um, to just send blessings to, to you and to your community and to everybody here that's on this on this uh, journey together so uh, the the traveler's prayer says uh may it be your will <laughs> may it be your will creator that you lead us toward peace guide our footsteps toward peace and make us reach our desired destination for life gladness and peace may you rescue us from the hand of every foe ambush along the way and from all manner of punishments that assemble to come to earth. May you send blessing in our work and grant us grace, kindness, and mercy in your eyes and in the eyes of all who see us. May you hear the sound of our humble request. Blessed are you, creator, who hears prayer. Go, Paul. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Shalom. Thank you for joining us. If you are interested in this series and other Chazon podcasts, be sure to subscribe to Chazon the Podcast. For our next episode, we'll be speaking with Reverend Susan Hendershot, the President of Interfaith Power and Light. 
To follow other programs in the Sound the Call series at COP26, visit chazon.org backslash COP26.